Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah chapter 55. The theme tonight or the subject is you're invited to come. You're invited to come. The work or the mission of the suffering servant, which is Jesus Christ in chapter 53, makes it possible to offer salvation here in chapter 55. In chapter 54, the invitation of salvation was limited to Israel. But here in chapter 55, the invitation is now extended to the whole world. The gospel went first to Israel and then to the Gentiles. The servant didn't die. Jesus didn't die for just the sins of Israel. He died for the sins of the whole world. Isaiah makes it clear all through his book, that the Gentiles are included in God's plan of salvation. What Isaiah and the other prophets didn't know was that believing Jews and Gentiles would be united one day in Christ in the church. Chapters 40 through 55 conclude with two invitations that are related. First, come to the Lord and share in the Davidic kingdom. In verses 1 through 5. Second, to seek the Lord and find forgiveness in verses 6 through 7. And the promise is a sure thing because God's grace is bottomless. There is no end. Verses 8 and 9. And his word will set definitely, definitely be fulfilled. Verses 10 through 13. And the invitations first offered by the Lord to the exiles, that is those that were in captivity, are now offered to everyone let's begin now with chapter 55 verse 1 and it says ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat yes come buy wine and milk without money and without price the word ho at the very beginning is usually a cry of grief and it and it occurs 50 times in the prophets and one time in another place. Six times it refers to mourning for the dead, and 40 times it involves negative warnings or threats of God's physical chastisement. But here it's a positive invitation to come and to buy good things without money or price. Now this is a message that God wants every living soul, every human being to hear. God is saying here through Isaiah, just don't sit there thinking about this offer, trying to figure it out, trying to make up your mind, making excuses for not coming. He said, he's saying, get up, come over here. I have a rich spiritual privilege prepared for you. He says, I want you to buy into it, though someone else has already paid the bill. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 7, 37, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The word thirst here in verse 1 is a metaphor for desiring what satisfies a person's spirit. And waters is a metaphor for the enjoyment of salvation in God. The words wine and milk are symbols of total satisfaction in verse 2. 
Not only does God's salvation supply what's necessary for living, but it also produces what brings joy to us. He says, you who have no money, buy. This says that salvation cannot be bought, but it's free for those who want it. The psalmist said in Psalm 49, 6 through 9, they trust, he's speaking of their wealth, the, the wealthy, the rich. He says, they trust in their wealth and they boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Jesus is overflowing with satisfaction. And all true Christian experience comes from what Jesus provides, not what we provide. But knowing that isn't enough. You have to take hold of it. You have to receive it. And the only thing that stands between you and God right now is your baseless unbelief. An unbelief that has no foundation, that has no grounds. In order to get His blessing, we don't have to deserve it. Thank God, because we could never deserve it. We can't earn it. Thank God, because we can't earn it. You could never earn it. We can't buy it because it's not for sale. But God has told us in verse 1 to get it and to come. To come. Look at the, uh, uh, the first part of verse 2. Verse 2a, look what it says. It says, he asks the question now, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Why are you spending money on food that doesn't give you strength? Why are you spending money on food that doesn't do you any good? Isaiah is building up further now on his argument. He says, eternal life here and now can be yours for nothing. He says, why aren't you running to it? Why aren't you grabbing it up? He says, where's the payoff? For following this worldly system. What are you going to get out of it? Out of, of following this worldly system? The only thing this world has to offer you at best is temporary joy. The rest is, bro, uh, is broken hearts, disappointment, shattered and unfulfilled dreams. We really don't have any sensible reason to refuse what God is offering. We have no sensible reason to hold on to our worldly gods which are all temporary and they're useless that which is not bread can't satisfy you isaiah is saying here no matter how expensive it is or how hard we try to make it work you know this this world is like a huge swap meet of cheap unsatisfying but consequential experiences to fill that god-shaped void in our life but we're not very good or observant shoppers <laughs> And we let the top salesman of this world, the devil, talk us into what we should buy. What he tries to sell us. And just like Satan tried to do that with Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. Remember he told Jesus, look, I'll give you, I'll give you the world if you give me worship. You know, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity into our hearts. That's the, the, the God-shaped void that we have in our hearts. That's why you can't buy happiness. That's why you can't chase happiness trying to attain it. Happiness is a byproduct of your relationship with God. 
Jesus said, if you know these things, notice, blessed are you if you do them. John 13, 17. Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it or obey it. James 1, 25, James says, he who is a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. It's in the doing. It's not in the knowing. You see, Scripture tells us that our happiness is dependent upon the width, length, depth, and height of the relationship that we have with God. And a lot of people's unhappiness is caused by looking in all the wrong places in things that can never satisfy, and no person or thing or things can make you happy. God here is calling us back to himself. And he explains this metaphor of buying and eating and how much the reality is worth to us. The second part of verse 2 through verse 3. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, notice, and come to me. Here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. God says, hey, try out my menu. He says, I'm not serving up junk food. He says, I'm serving only the best. The psalmist said, taste it and see that the Lord is good. So how do I taste this fine food that he's offering up? Well, in verse, the second part of verse 2, it says, notice, listen carefully to me. It's by listening carefully to the Lord, that is, to his word. In other words, patient, open-minded, careful meditation over his truth in the gospel and thinking it over through and through again. That's the basic need to the life that's truly living again and not just existing. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And all spiritual restoration, all spiritual renewal starts and ends with God. He reveals the truth to us. He lives within us and then he enables us to respond to that truth. Why does the gospel work? With life-giving power? Because careful listening to God's word is the same as coming to him. Notice in verse 3, he said, incline your ear, listen to me, listen to what I have to say, and come to me. Paul said it to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Notice, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men. But as it is in truth, the word of God, which also, notice, effectively works in you who believe. The word of God will work effectively in you if you believe it. And the word believe is the same as the word obey used in another scripture. That's how God's word, God's word works in our lives. If we obey it, if we believe it, and we put it to the test. It's not just knowing it. It's doing it. And for those who will come and listen and seek the pleasure of what God is offering, God says, he will make an everlasting covenant with you there in verse 3. In other words, he says, I will give you all the everlasting love that I promised to David. And God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel seven sixteen. That promise was that a descendant would reign on David's throne forever, which is Jesus Christ. 
And the proof that, he's, he, that, that Jesus is God's king is seen in his resurrection, Christ's resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is God's covenant to the Gentiles. And his promises will stand as long as his son lives. And we know that's forever. It's for all eternity. Verses 4 and 5. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, speaking of Christ, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who you do not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. God's fulfillment of the promises He made to David, to the house of David, climaxing in the resurrection of Christ, the Messiah, serves as a witness to the nations. Jesus is a leader for the people. Revelation 3.14, John calls Jesus the faithful and true witness. God has sent Jesus to be a witness. That is a witness of what God is. The witness of God. That's Christ. Christ is the exact image of God. It's like looking in the mirror and seeing the exact image that's staring into that mirror. When you see Jesus Christ, you are seeing the exact image of God. The true and the faithful witness of God is Christ. And he is so much that exact image of God, Jesus could say to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In verse 4, it says, I have given him for a witness. God says, I have given him for a witness to the people and a leader and a commander for the people. The King of kings and the Lord of lords reigning over the earth just as God promised to him. So again, the nations recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord, coming to him, the Holy One of Israel. Why? Because he has glorified God, verse 5 says. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now here Isaiah tells us to call on the Lord while he's still near. Now, that doesn't mean that God is planning to move away from us. All right? That's not what it means here. It doesn't mean that God's going to go away. We're the ones who often do the moving. We're the ones who are often the ones who go away. We move far from him. Or we put barriers between us and God. But don't wait until you've drifted away far from God to seek him. Because the longer you wait and the, and the older you get, it may be a lot harder to turn to him. Because we get, especially as we get older, we get more set in our ways. Or God may come to judge the earth before you have decided to turn to him. Seek him now while you can before it's too late. God's grace, God's fountain of grace is free and it's overflowing, but it's also conditional. So what's involved in seeking the Lord? First of all, it's, it, it, it means admitting that we're sinners. And that we've offended the holy God. It means repenting, as verse 7 says. Changing one's mind about sin and turning away from sin and turning to the Lord. We must turn to God in faith and believe his promise that in his mercy, he will abundantly pardon. And remember, repentance and faith go together. In Acts 20, 21, it says, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. But no one should take their time to do this. The words, while he may be found, 
suggests that if we don't take his invitation serious, the invitation may come to an end while we're deciding what to do. Or where we're just not worried about when we're going to do it, if we're going to do it at all. Remember in the parable of the Great Supper, God closed the door on those who rejected his invitation? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The reason that we're thirsty, as Isaiah mentioned at first one, is because, we are, because we're wicked, according to verse 7. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We have some changes to make. And the time that we have to do it is limited. We don't know when God's going to shut that door of grace. But if you look around, it appears to be closing fast. Right now, the door of grace is wide open. It has been for over 2,000 years. But it's going to close one day. And we need to be alert, and we need to get busy, and we need to seek the Lord if we haven't. That means we need to stop messing around and get serious about Jesus and make him our top priority in life and getting rid of everything in our life that keeps us away from him. That's listening to his word without doubting. That means submitting to his will with no strings attached or any objections. Seeking the Lord is a whole life transformation in Christ. We stop treating him like a religious ornament on the side and, 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 and he becomes our continual delight day and night. And he becomes the center of our lives. And the time to do that, the time to come is now. He's near to us. He's not far away. He's not unfriendly and he's not unavailable. Jeremiah 23, 23, God says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? He's saying, hey, I'm a God near at hand. I'm not a God that's afar off. And he's inviting us to get even closer to him. But the only way we can do that is to deny ourselves and forsake, uh, uh, and forsake our way, you know, deny ourselves verse 7 says notice let the wicked forsake his way they are to deny themselves and forsake the wicked ways that they live jesus said in luke 9 23 if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily every day and follow me You know, the world tells us to exalt ourselves, elevate ourselves, pamper ourselves, please ourselves, cater to ourselves. Jesus said, deny ourselves. Jesus didn't make discipleship, uh, discipleship cheap and easy. He didn't, he didn't speak of only the nice things about being a disciple or disciple. He also spoke of the great cost involved. Ministry. There's a cost involved. It can be costly. It can be inconvenient. But when God calls, we can't say, oh, later, God. I- I'm busy right now. Being a disciple means you won't be selfish. It means you'll be willing to sacrifice anything in order to follow Jesus. 
You know, when Jesus, you know, you know had, had offered the, the when these th- three men had offered to follow Jesus, they well, wait a minute, let me go first, bury the dead, let me go first, you know, check out the oxen that I bought. Let me first. See, that's the problem. Let me first. Let me do what I need to do, and Lord, I'll, I'll come and follow you. It means you will not be selfish. It means you will be willing to sacrifice anything in order to follow Jesus Christ. And not a lot of people are willing to deny themselves of anything today. If they can't have what they want, they fuss. They fuss like a, like a child that doesn't get their way. And these types of people don't make good disciples of Jesus Christ. Denying self is the only way we can draw closer to him. Because the things that we do and the way that we think, it, 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 it reduces God. It lessens who he is. And it increases who we are or, or it exalts ourselves. Or it's our business as usual, or it's our sufficiency, or it's our thinking that we're okay. But the truth is we're wrong. We're not okay. What's wrong with us? Everything. Everything about us, even our thoughts, the way we think about ourselves. And many times we're so tolerant of our sins. And we justify our sins. And many times we've lost, a, we've lost a biblical view of real Christianity today, which is denying ourselves. In Romans 6, Paul said that sin had to be crucified, not suppressed, not neutralized, crucified. The biblical view, biblical view of real Christianity, which is, is, is denying ourselves, is dying to self to come to Jesus to answer the call to come to Jesus is a call to die it's a call to die and it's not too late to get back to the basics of the word of God which is greatly needed today we have forgotten or we don't realize it that Christianity is so opposite to our nature so opposite to our likes and our dislikes. And discipleship requires nothing less than a Christ-like transformation in Christ. As Christians, we can't just fine-tune our ways and our thoughts. We can't just receive Jesus Christ and think, That's it. That's all I have to do. We can't just join a church and think that that's all there is to it. And think that Christianity's, uh, think that, that that's Christianity. Joining a church and going to church because that won't challenge us. That won't challenge our selfish lifestyle. You know, just be nice and, and harmless. Church going people with no repentance, no submission with no obedience to God, no forsaking of ourself and our sin, no pursuit of Christ and holiness, and covering all of that over with a, I feel good about myself, religion, Sunday after Sunday. 
is not all what God has in mind for us. A.W. Tozer said, a whole generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. In the days of the early church, the church, the early church never got along with the world. Leonard Ravenhill said, no nation is better than its church. No church is better than its people. Only a God-transformed, Holy Spirit-baptized people can change the moral fiber of the nation. I wonder if the average church today could qualify to be called a New Testament church by the Book of Acts standard. We've drifted drifted from the gospel when it comes to Christian living. And again, the way it looks, we don't have a lot of time to get back to it. And if we want to feast at the eternal supper of the Lamb, God is showing us the way. And many have gone before us. And they're waiting for the rest. Isaiah could say it more clearly, uh, couldn't say it more clearly than in verses 6 through 7. Notice, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and the Lord will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Our only way forward is clear. And it's radical. But it's essential. And God is calling us to totally overhaul our Christian life. God is calling us to to put ourselves under His watchful eye, welcoming His ways and His thoughts, which are totally, as we know, are totally different to us, but clearly laid out in His Word. God is calling us to transform our lives and our churches with newness like never before because many times we're not yet living proof of the power of his infinite grace humbly and boldly accepting his call in verse 7 notice let him return to the Lord and if we submit to God in repentance God's going to show us his he will show us his compassion And Isaiah says, and he will abundantly pardon. That is, he's speaking of a generous forgiveness. Verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, Why do we need repentance so urgently, so immediately? Because God's thoughts, as we know, and His ways are so high above ours. And the gap between His thoughts and His ways and our thoughts and and our ways, that gap is so wide between God and us. Now, we might not see much wrong with our lives. 
But what does God see? Because that's what matters. Our feelings and our habits, we, we shouldn't defend them, we should, re, we should exa- re-examine them. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 6, he said to the Corinthians, which was a seriously troubled church, he says, examine yourselves as to whether, uh, whether you are in the faith. He said, test yourselves. He says, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He's saying, you're Christians. Examine yourselves. Whether or not you're in the faith, test yourselves. As we know, or or we should know, or we have found out, I'm sure God rarely does anything exactly the way we think he will, or that we would want him to. You see, our problem is that we think we know what God would do. Or we second-guess God. And I've heard many people over the years, you know, they'll be sharing with somebody who's going through a, a, a difficult situation. So, oh, oh, no, God wouldn't do that. Oh, really? Oh, I'm sure God wouldn't want you to go through that. Really? You see, we become like little gods. Do you really know what you think God would do in somebody else's life? Our own life? That we could be so sure to say, hey, no, God doesn't want you to go through that. Okay. And then you, you interfere with something that God is doing in somebody's life, and it turns out messed up because they listen to you or me instead of God. Or said, God, help me to get through this, not get out of this. Help me to learn from this, Lord. Help me to become a student and not a victim. Moses experienced this when he learned how God was going to deliver the Jews, uh, the Hebrews, out of uh, Egypt. God told Moses he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And yet things didn't turn out the way Moses thought they would. Rather than letting the Hebrews leave, remember, Pharaoh made things harder for them. He made things worse for them. Rather than Moses becoming a hero among the Hebrews, they despised him. Because he brought even more suffering upon them. And Moses goes back to the Lord. He says, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on this people? Why did you send me? A lot of the frustration that Christians experience has nothing to do with what God does or doesn't do. It has everything to do with the wrong ideas we have about how we think God will and should act. Oh, I can't believe God did that. Have you ever done the will of God? And then things seem to turn out worse? Moses totally misunderstood what the results of his obedience to God would do. And many times when we do the will of God and we're following the will of God and, it, and things start to go haywire, we go, oh, I must have messed up. I made a mistake or God made a mistake. Somebody made a mistake because things aren't going very well. Remember Abraham? When God told him, hey, get out of your country and go. I'll show you where to go and, and I'll, I'll, I'll lead the way. 
Well, Abraham was following the Lord's instructions when he goes down to Egypt. When he gets there, he finds himself, he finds himself in the midst of a famine in the land. You say, I wonder if I made a wrong turn somewhere. Did God know there was going to be a famine when I got here? When things didn't turn out the way Moses expected them, he got bummed out. What about Joseph and all that he went through? God had a plan for Joseph. And man, that was, it was, you know, he spent years in prison. He spent, he, he, he was a slave in, in, in Potiphar's house. You know, accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. God, is this your will? God told Moses what to do, but he didn't tell Moses how things would turn out. And it's, it's crazy to try to do God's work using our own common sense. Now, God doesn't take away our common sense. He blesses it. He gives, he gives you his wisdom so that you can understand his ways. And as you look back on God's hand in your life, you'll be able to see the wisdom in how he's led you. You look back and you go, oh, I, I can see now why that prayer wasn't answered. That wouldn't have been a good thing for me. Oh, I can see now why God took me over here. Because staying there wouldn't have been good for me. And as you look ahead to what God might do, just be careful that you don't try to second guess what he's going to do next. Because you'll probably be way off the target. Verses 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God says, it's the same thing with my word. My thoughts are far above yours, and my word is the same. He says, you know, I send my word out, and it always produces fruit. It never comes back void. He says, my word will always accomplish all that I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Hey, and when God speaks, nothing stays the same. When God speaks, nothing stays the same. Remember in, in, in Genesis, in, in the beginning, when God spoke, the universe was created. And God followed a pattern when he created the earth. He spoke, the Bible says, and it was so. And it was good. And this is the pattern that God has used throughout the whole Bible. Whenever God revealed his plans, things happened. Just like he said they would. God doesn't make suggestions. God doesn't speak in riddles or cliches. God speaks knowing, knowing perfectly that what he said will come to pass. 
Whenever Jesus spoke, what he said came to pass. Lepers learn that a word from Jesus meant healing. The blind man learned that a word from Jesus meant sight. Through a barren fig tree, the disciples saw that a curse from Jesus meant destruction. The sinner experienced forgiveness through a word from Jesus. Remember when Lazarus died? How many times did Jesus have to say, Lazarus, come forth? He didn't have to go, oh, well, you know, let me try it a second. Well, let me try it a third time. Maybe the third time he'll pop out. One time. Lazarus, come forth. And thank God he said Lazarus or everybody would have come out of the tombs. <laughs> Only once. There was never a time when Jesus spoke that it didn't happen. Now, what happens when Jesus speaks to you and me? Have we been reading the words of Jesus in our Bibles without experiencing his word that transforms everything around us? Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they they thought just knowing the scriptures would give them eternal life. The Pharisees were satisfied just having the words instead of experiencing the person who spoke the words. Man, how powerful is a word from God in your life? As we read our Bibles and pray, listen to what God has to say to you about his will for your life. God's word serves his purposes whether we see it or not. Let's close now with verses 12 through 13. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In these last verses, two verses, 12 and 13, these last two verses describe both the joy of the captives after they were released from their captivity and it expresses the joy of Israel when they share in that wonderful departure from captivity in the end of the age when they return to their land. Verse 13 looks forward to the millennium when the earth will be redeemed from the curse of sin. The curse of sin is expressed by the thorn and briar. And when Jesus died, he not only redeemed sinners, he also redeemed a sin cursed earth when the kingdom is established all of nature is going to sing to the Lord and praise him for his redeeming work father we thank you so much for your word Lord we thank you for this wonderful word Lord and father may we just Take it to heart, Father, the call to repentance, the call to renewal, God, the call to service, the call to die. 
the call to deny ourselves. The, God, the call to forsake sin. It's not just going to church. It's not just feeling good. It's crucifying the flesh every day in a thousand ways that we may serve you with all, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for the mercy that you have shown us, God. And Father, we see the, the, the doors of grace closing. We see your word coming to pass more and more every day, God. Lord, may we be in tune with your spirit. And Father, if the spirit of God has shown us our hearts that there needs to be changes, God, may we, may we make those changes, Lord. Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be, disciples, servants of the most high God. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Sunday morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's message of wisdom. And it wasn't his wisdom, but it was the wisdom that God gave him. God bless you guys.